Do you find it challenging to get organ meats into your healthy ketogenic lifestyle? Don't you wish you could get all the benefits of consuming these traditional superfoods chock full of nutrients without having to cook or eat them? Well, let me introduce you to the brand new grass-fed organ complex supplement from Paleo Valley, makers of the deliciously juicy grass-fed beef sticks. They use gently freeze-dried ingredients, including all grass-fed, grass-finished beef liver, heart, brain, and kidney to give you a flavorless, power-packed punch of nutrition you won't be able to replicate beyond eating all of these organ meats in your diet. Each bottle contains a 30-day supply of easy-to-swallow pills with no fillers or flow agents added. They're gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. Go to paleovalley.com LLVLC and use the coupon code LLVLC to get a generous 20% off your order. Try it today to get a 60-day, 100% money-back guarantee and see how you like the grass-fed organ complex for yourself. That's paleovalley.com slash LLVLC. Real food is something the keto community can rally behind and support as we shift away from the sugary, grainy, starchy, food-like disease agents sold in grocery stores and more towards high-quality food that nourishes our bodies. That's why I love ButcherBox. Visit ButcherBox.com Jimmy and you'll get an exclusive deal on 100% grass-fed beef, organic chicken, and heritage breed pork delivered right to your door for $6.50 a meal. That includes free shipping and $10 off your order plus a free smoked bratwurst. ButcherBox has a commitment to supplying only the very finest cuts of grass-fed and pastured meats you can find anywhere. The best and most convenient part for our busy lifestyles is they ship your box to wherever you are so you can fire up the grill and enjoy food you can believe in again. Again, it's ButcherBox. Visit ButcherBox.com Jimmy for this exclusive deal for my listeners. Coming up in episode 1214, Dr. Peter Bruckner. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've change at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author. You're like the LL Cool J of podcasting. Jimmy Moore. Today's featured audio is from the Low Carb Vail Conference that took place in Vail, Colorado last February. And don't miss this year's Low Carb Breckenridge Conference coming February 24th through the 26th, 2017 in Breckenridge, Colorado. Go to theliveinlowcarbshow.com to get more information about the Low Carb Breckenridge Conference. Thanks for all hanging around. Um, it's after that last talk, I think it's time to dumb things down a bit, and uh, I'm just the man for the job, really. Because um, I'm just a sports jock, you know, I'm just a, uh, a sports, uh, sports medicine doctor, and uh, we're not real doctors, we don't uh, deal with real disease, we just uh, try and keep athletes on, on the park. But uh, what I want to talk about uh, today is uh, 
four different topics. I want to take you through my low-carb journey. Um, I want to talk uh, very briefly, um, summarize the effects of low-carb on health and the effects on performance. And I want to finish by talking a little bit about uh, the politics of, uh, of how we can achieve our aims in, uh, in uh, worldwide dominance of, uh, of low-carb. So I thought I'd start with, uh, with my low, and I'm sorry to be self-indulgent, but it's a fairly typical story, I think, of a, of a middle-aged uh, person who, uh, who goes low-carb. So I've always been interested in nutrition. I co-authored uh, the first Australian book on, uh, on sports nutrition back in the 1980s called Food for Sport. But to be honest, I got a bit bored with new sports nutrition. I mean, because for 20, 30 years, all it was was carbs and carbs and carb loading for marathons and, and more carbs and carbs for recovery and, uh, and carbs during events and, uh, and then a bit of some fluids and, you know, you don't wait till you're thirsty, you drink, 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 and, and that was it. So, uh, you know, I sort of lost a bit of interest, to be honest. And um, so uh, that, was, uh, that was until 2012. And... Um, I just uh, turned 60. I know you find that hard to believe, but I just turned 60. <laughs> and um, I'd, uh, I'd, I was overweight. Uh, I'd probably gained um, a pound a year for uh, the previous 30 years. That is despite, you know, following all the nutritional guidelines, you know, low fat. So I'd have low fat milk and low fat this and low fat that. I was very conscientious. And yet despite that, I'd put on uh, probably 15 kilograms, 30 pounds uh, over, uh, over that period of time. And I was 93 kilograms. I don't know what that is in pounds, but it's a lot. Um, and uh, as you can see, I looked about, you know, five months pregnant there. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, my kids are starting to sort of poke me in the, in the belly and say, you know, Dad, come on, you know, do something. And I said, well, guys, you know, I'm doing all the right things. You know, uh, I was exercising, and, uh, and despite that, I was, I was still uh, getting to become obese. And then uh, in 2012, um, I saw uh, a statement by this guy, Tim Noakes. Tim's an old friend of mine. We've uh, shared uh, conference platforms for probably 20 or 30 years, uh, and he's someone I'd always really admired, his intellect. Uh, Tim's always someone who challenged the norm, and uh, previously he'd been proven correct on a, on a number of occasions. So, uh, so when, uh, when Tim came out, not, not the normal way people come out, but uh, came out... Uh, <laughs> Came out, and I don't want to spread rumours. He's very you know, happily. Um, when Tim came out uh, in 2012 and said that you know uh, uh, instead of uh, you know that everything he'd been saying about carbs uh, for the last uh, 30 years was wrong, and uh, that we should be uh, you know low carb, I uh, I really sort of was was shocked. I mean. Uh, Tim, uh, Tim wrote The Law of Running. Any, any runners in the room would have, would have read that. It's the Bible of running. And in it, he talks a lot about carbs and the importance of carbs and so on. And all of a sudden, this guy who's sort of the, the king of carbs, if you like, has come around and said, no, I was wrong. And that uh, both for his personal experience and from others, that uh, he'd changed his mind. And he thought that uh, carbs were, in fact, detrimental. And uh, he'd, he'd developed type 2 diabetes himself. And, uh, and he was feeling terrible. And uh, he transformed his life with, uh, by reducing carbs. And I thought, oh boy, that's a big one. You know, I think has Tim finally lost it. You know, as he finally sort of, uh, uh, you know, all those carbs really got to him. Um, but uh, so and I thought, no, no, let's think about that. I mean, Tim, as I said, is someone whose intellect I'd really admired. So I thought, well, I need to go and investigate this. So uh, I went and uh, and bought a book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, Gary Taubes. I'm sure most of you have uh, have read it. Uh, in England, it was called The Diet uh, Delusion, and, and the sort of dumbed down version is We Get Fat, but. Uh, I read that book and um, I just couldn't believe it. Every night I would go to bed and shaking my head and saying, no, this could not be true. This couldn't, we couldn't have got this wrong for 30 years. 
it really just quite it disturbed me. I mean, it was quite a disturbing read to uh, to read this book. There's a fascinating thing about the book was it not only did it sort of talk about the the science or non-science of of, uh, of low fat and low and low carb, but it talked about the politics, explained why. The, uh, the low fat movement, I guess, had become dominant, had won out over the low carb movement back in the, in the 70s and 80s. It was a fascinating book and it just blew me away. I, I never read a book that had such an impact on me uh, in my time. So thank you very much, Gary Tobbs. But um, so I got to the end of that and, and, and that had a desire to read more. So I, I read every book I could get my hands on and every article. I must have read hundreds of papers and, uh, and so on. And, uh, and the more I read, the more I, I got convinced that, you know, maybe we have been wrong for all this time. And I thought, well, the next thing to do is, uh, is research. You know, I always big, big on research. Um, and I decided to do an experiment. Um, and this experiment was, uh, was an N equals one, which uh, most scientists would say is absolutely useless, except when the one is you. And in that case, uh, I decided the one was going to be me. And I would experiment on myself and I would go low carb. So, uh, I, which I did, um, and I uh, did all the things that, that you're all very familiar with, stopped all the other uh, rice and bread and grains and pasta and, and so on, and, uh, and ate lots of, uh, lots of green veg and, uh, and salmon and, and all those things. And, and the odd glass of red wine there that snuck into the photo. I don't know how that got there. Um, <laughs> well, there's lots of good things in red wine. You know, there's reservatory. Anyway. Um, but, um, so I did that for, uh, for 13 weeks. And uh, at the end of that, uh, at 13 weeks, I was half the man uh, I, know I used to be. I'd lost, uh, so uh, I'd lost 28 pounds um, and, uh, in 13 weeks. And uh, I felt fantastic. Um, I, uh, my appetite had diminished remarkably. Uh, I was eating, so previously, you know, I'd have my normal sort of cereal and things for breakfast, and by, you know, 11.30, I'd be sort of looking at my watch saying, God, it must be lunchtime soon, whereas now I didn't even have lunch. So I'd lost my appetite. Um, my exercise capacity had increased. I felt uh, I was able to do more exercise, um, and, and all in all, I felt uh, really good. So what about, uh, you know, my research, my, uh, my bloods? Um, well, September uh, the 15th was when I started, the day before I started, and uh, December the 17th was the, the sort of the, the three months up was up and then I repeated my bloods in May and, and this is very typical and I'm sure you've seen this all in your practices my total cholesterol was uh, if anything slightly higher my HDL was a little bit higher my LDL was higher my triglycerides went down dramatically and I believe the most important uh, component of, of lipids is your triglyceride HDL ratio I don't take too much notice of uh, total cholesterol or even LDL but the trig HDL ratio, I think, is the key, and mine went from 2.13 to 1.13. So I was pretty happy with that. I felt my, my cardiac, cardiovascular risk had significantly diminished as a result of that, uh, of that diet. Now, interestingly enough, uh, I uh, had previous blood tests that I'd uh, chosen to ignore, but they'd shown a, a fatty liver. And, uh, and these results here in 2005, 7-11, were just from routine blood tests for other reasons. And uh, that showed elevated liver enzymes, your gamma GT and your ALT in, in particular. And that is very indicative of fatty liver. And I remember reading the report, you know, down the bottom, it said, you know, suggestive of fatty liver. And typical doctor, I totally ignored it and sort of pushed it to the back of my mind and uh, pretended that uh, that wasn't happening because I didn't have uh, fatty liver. I didn't really know what fatty liver was anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> um, I told you, I dumbed down. I'm a doctor, a sports doctor. Um, but uh, in 2013, I, w I wasn't even really thinking about it, but I have, because the blood test sort of showed up next to the previous one, I suddenly realized that my fatty liver had disappeared. 
and I wasn't even trying. And uh, you know, I ate all this fat, and my fatty liver disappeared. And uh, I was really messy with my head, I tell you. <laughs> so in three months of, uh, of low-carb, high-fat, I'd lost uh, 28, 29 pounds of weight. I'd have reduced appetite. I'd increased my uh, HDL, my good cholesterol. I'd uh, decreased significantly my triglycerides, improved my triglyceride HDL ratio. Uh, my fatty liver had resolved. That's not a bad package, is it? The only problem was I had to get a new wardrobe. But you know, <laughs> that's a price you have to pay. No, don't, don't applaud because you know you should criticize me for being dumb enough to have got that fat in the first place. But uh, anyway, that's okay. Um, and so following that, you know, I, I then became very interested. I, I, Tim Noakes then brought out his book, Real Meal uh, Revolution, and then, uh, then Nina Teicholz, who I think uh, uh, is probably the best book of all. Uh, I'll always be indebted to Gary Chalmers' book, but I think Nina's actually uh, probably an even better book, and that's certainly the best book I've read uh, on the topic, and I'll, I'll come back to that, uh, that book later on. And uh, so, you know, I read everything I could possibly get my hands on. I even became a movie star um, in, uh, in Serial Killers and with Tim Noakes. And I was fortunate enough to meet up with, uh, with Rod and, and be invited to, uh, to speak at some of his low-carb down-under seminars. And we'd run out of people in Australia to bore, so uh, he brought me over here to, uh, to bore you lot. So, uh, and, uh, and I put a little... Uh, people kept saying, oh, you're going to write a book, you're going to write a book. And I said, I can't possibly write uh, books as well as some of the people who are out there, but I have got a little sort of uh, pamphlet that I've, uh, that I've written on. So, what, so you want to know about low-carb, high-fat. Okay, so uh, enough about me. Um, so what about uh, the effects on, uh, on health? Okay, now again, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm appreciatively converted here and that many of you are already aware of this. So I'll just whip through some of uh, this because there may be one or two of you who uh, are uh, new to this game. So I, I believe that there are three modern epidemics. You know, we keep hearing about, you know, Ebola and, and, and uh, all other fancy diseases, but really, you know, the serious epidemics are these three, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And, and I, what I'll propose to show you now is that they're all related. Uh, obesity, well, you know, you've all seen the graphs of, uh, and, you know, you do this in every country, Americans are getting heavier, significantly heavier, both men and women, and the rate continues to, uh, to climb, about a third. Uh, and then the figures are very similar for Australia. We, uh, you know, we have follow all your good habits. Um, so uh, it's about a third obese, a third overweight, and a third, uh, a third normal weight. And that's not a great uh, percentage. And incredibly expensive. I mean, the cost to the community of uh, obesity is, uh, is massive. Um, and kids, I mean, uh, you know, we never used to see. I, I remember at school, I, I was trying to think the other day, did, there was one fat kid at school. We call him Fatty. That was imaginative. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, and, he, and you know, he's, he's a friend of mine, he's subsequently, you know, he's, he's fine and he, he lost weight and so on. But, but, you know, the point of that is that, you know, he was so unusual, you know, that we called him Fatty. I mean, nowadays, you know, every second kid is Fatty. And uh, probably, you know, parents will sue you if you call him Fatty or something like that. But anyway, um, and look, you know, the United States you know, leads the medal tally in Olympics and, you know, leads the world in many things and you'd be pleased to know that you lead the world in uh, the prevalence of uh, overweight children as well, so congratulations. <laughs> and, uh, and that's uh, steadily increasing as well. Uh, well done. <laughs> and, as, uh, and as Yang said in JAMA recently, this generation of Americans is the first that will have a shorter life expectancy. That is scandalous. I mean, all of modern technology and everything we know, and you know, the, you know, the wonderful things that medicine can do now, and this generation is going to have a shorter life expectancy than the previous one. That is a scandal. Why? Well, 
you know, what happened? What happened uh, to make that graph start going up? Well, something happened, uh, you know, 30 years ago, and uh, for reasons that we won't uh, necessarily go into, that uh, Gary and Nina have explained very well, that we decided that fat was bad. And uh, we decided that low fat was uh, the way to go. And uh, we were very good at, uh, at, at doing that. You know, we, we, we maintained it uh, ourselves. I mean, uh, so on, and we brought in these, these guidelines, you know. Now, pyramids are wonderful things, you know, uh, but uh, this pyramid has, uh, has done a lot of damage. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, uh, it needs to fall down uh, much quicker than the other pyramids fell down. Oh, going to fall down. Um, so, you know, we were very good at following those low-fat guidelines. You know, you look at uh, all the changes and, uh, you know, we did what we were told. Um, you know, we did reduce the amount of uh, fat intake. Um, the only problem is, of course, you know, the, uh, the food companies being very clever, they realised that when they, and they responded very well, the food industry was fantastic, you know. They'll take all the fat out, sure, we'll take all the fat out. They took all the fat out of food and they suddenly realised, oh, that, there's no flavour left in the, uh, in the food. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Aha, I know what we'll do. We'll just pump sugar in instead. But we won't call it sugar. We'll call it other things. They're very clever. So that's what, uh, that's what they did. And uh, 30 years ago, we swapped fat for sugar, basically. And uh, now we have, uh, you know, incredible amounts of, of sugar in all our, in our sodas. And I like to sort of, you know, think about teaspoons of sugar because no one really understands calories and mils and ounces and grams and all that sort of stuff. So let's just talk about, uh, about teaspoons of, uh, of sugar. And it's pretty scary. And source, I mean, you know, okay, we all sort of get it that, you know, soda drinks might have sugar in them. But, uh, you know, sauces and things like that, sugar is everywhere. 70% uh, of processed foods have added sugar. And uh, as for... Uh, you know, Starbucks, well, we won't go there. <laughs> now, this is interesting. This is uh, Australian figures, okay? So the top five checkout items in the major supermarket in Australia, leaving aside alcohol and cigarettes, which is a comment in itself, number one was Coca-Cola, a 300-small bottle. Next one was uh, a 24-pack. Next one was a 30-pack. Somehow milk snuck in there. And the next, the next one was two litre bottle of Coke, and the next one was a one litre bottle of Coke. Four of the top five. Congratulations, Coca-Cola. Well done. Your shareholders are very happy. As I said, you know, we, uh, they, they kept putting sugar in things, but they never called it sugar. And there are 56 different names. There's probably more since uh, we did that slide for sugar. And it's everywhere. And uh, you've got to, uh, you can look at a label and say, oh, gosh, good, that's not, hasn't got any sugar in it. Nah. Okay, well, can we lose weight? Well, we can't just do it by running. And uh, there's a very good article by Asim uh, Malhotra, who's a uh, British cardiologist, who I'm sure you've all, uh, all read, and, uh, and Tim and Steve Finney, and, uh, and showed that uh, you, know, you can't just outrun a bad diet. The, the most important, there are many reasons to exercise, don't get me wrong, there are huge benefits of exercise, but one of them is probably not, not a really strong benefit to weight. So we need to sort of change the, uh, the pyramid around a little bit. Um, now, just looking at there are a number of studies, and again, there's been more since, uh, since I put this slide together, but let's have a look at 23 studies comparing weight loss with a low-fat and a low-carb uh, diet. And uh, yes, you do lose weight on a low-fat diet, certainly. Um, you know, let, let's not uh, kid ourselves. Low-fat diets is, are effective. They're not nearly as effective as low-carb diet, and they're unsustainable, unlike a low-carb low diet. So there's two fairly important factors, but they are effective. But again, not nearly in every single study, 
The low-carb diet was more effective than the low-fat diet as far as weight loss goes. Okay, let's move on to diabetes. There are other people in the audience, Eric, and, and others who know far more about diabetes than, diabetes than I do. But just quickly, there are 105 million Americans with diabetes or pre-diabetes. In the world, it's gone up from 30 million to 415, and I think that's a very conservative estimate. Diabetes, obesity, and the metabolic syndrome are starting to overtake communicable diseases as major threats to health worldwide. Prevalence rates of diabetes and obesity are rising sharply. That article was in The Lancet, one of the world's most reputable journals. Diabetes rate, up it goes, similar to the obesity rate. That's a coincidence. Um, and the cost, in the UK they're predicting within 10 years, the cost of treating diabetes alone will be the same as the whole health budget at the moment. Think about that. We're bankrupting our countries. We won't be able to provide healthcare within 10 or 15 years if we keep going the way we are. Yet the current treatment to protocols, insulin drugs, low-fat diets are clearly not effective enough. We need to look at other, uh, other possibilities. And most of you will have read this very excellent review by, uh, by Richard Feynman, which summarizes very well the efficacy of low-carb diets in the management of diabetes. And there's no doubt that low-carb diet should be the first port of call in the treatment of diabetes. Now, what about uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? It doesn't get as much publicity as, as the other things. It's characterized by an accumulation of fat in the liver with or without inflammation, fibrosis, and cirrhosis in the absence of substantial alcohol consumption. So for years, we've worried about you know, alcoholic liver disease, liver cirrhosis. Well, here we are. We're having the same thing occur without any alcohol with uh, just high carbohydrate intake. It now affects 20 to 30% of adults in the developed world, and yet most of us don't know it. Well, if we have blood tests that show, we just ignore it. Um, and it can progress to other, uh, other liver, liver problems. It can also be found to increase overall cardiovascular. But the interesting thing is it seems to be a precursor. So there's a wonderful uh, expression by Professor Taylor in 2013. Before the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, there was a long, silent scream from the liver. So in other words, a fatty liver is probably one of the early signs that you're failing to cope with uh, the carbohydrate load and that you're heading towards metabolic syndrome and, uh, and diabetes. So an important uh, factor. Are you passionate about nutrition and looking for a way to start sharing your knowledge with others through a respected credentialed education program? Then check out the Nutrition Therapy Association, NTA, at nutritionaltherapy.com. The NTA trains and certifies nutritional therapy practitioners and consultants by emphasizing the bio-individuality and the wide range of dietary strategies that support overall wellness. The NTA encourages encourages local, whole, properly prepared, nutrient-dense foods as the key to restoring balance and enhancing the body's ability to heal. You can become a Nutritional Therapy Practitioner, NTP, in just nine months of 15 to 20 hours a week commitment, and it includes three multi-day hands-on workshops with live info sessions twice monthly. Registration is currently live through February the 6th, 2017, and financial aid is available as well. Learn more by calling the NTA toll-free at 800-918-9798 and sign up now for the 10th annual NTA conference coming to Vancouver, Washington on March the 3rd through the 5th, 2017. Learn more about becoming an NTP at nutritionaltherapy.com. 
Do you miss pizza because it's not a part of your low-carb lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Real Good Pizza Company. Go to realgoodpizzaco.com and you'll see they have grain-free, gluten-free pizzas that are frozen, 25 grams of protein, 4 grams of carbohydrates, and lots and lots of healthy fats. They only use real food ingredients, almost no carbs, and it's perfect for any low-carb and ketogenic lifestyle. The crust is made from all-natural Parmesan and chicken. The chicken is antibiotic-free and hormone-free. The tomatoes in the sauce and the vegetables in the Supreme are non-GMO, and the cheese is locally sourced and all-natural as well. It's healthy, guilt-free pizza that actually tastes like a pizza. Again, it's called Real Good Pizza. Head on over to realgoodpizzaco.com and be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off your order as well as free shipping. Real Good Pizza. Are you a fan of wine but hate the high sugar content in most wines? Then allow me to introduce you to Dry Farm Wines. Visit their website dryfarmwines.com and you'll find a keto-friendly, sugar-free, carb-free, all-natural, organic, and additive-free wine. It's also low alcohol for good health and it has no negative impact on your ketone levels. Again, they're called Dry Farm Wines. Check them out, Dry Farm Wines. And just remind you of my results, you know, and that's uh, very typical of what happens. Completely resolved in the space of, uh, of three months on a low-carb diet. All right, just briefly, you're all aware of uh, the effects of, uh, of low-carb on, on uh, cardiac risk factors and the fact that uh, you know, every meta-analysis and, uh, and review shows that uh, there is no association of saturated fat with uh, cardiovascular disease. You still cannot convince any dietitian or any uh, cardiologist of that, but the facts are, uh, are there in the literature. Um, <laughs> blood tests are not always that, uh, that, that relevant. And again, comparing the two diets, uh, the, uh, the low-carbon and low-fat diets, on, uh, on, on uh, HDL cholesterol, these are a summary of all the different uh, studies. And again, you can see that the, the blue, which is the low carb, has a better, more, uh, more positive effect for increasing the HDL. Remember, the higher the HDL, the better uh, than a low fat diet. And similarly with triglycerides, the lower the triglyceride, the better, and, and low carb is, is much more proficient. So uh, I think, you know, the, I mean, it's very clear what, uh, what the most effective diet is. And of course, statins. You know, that's, uh, the amount of money being spent on uh, statins in, uh, in my country and yours is absolutely ridiculous, and all it does is give you three extra days of life. That's uh, uh-huh. quoting a reputable medical journal uh, in England. <laughs> Uh, the Beckhams are set to buy it. No, no, sorry, statins uh, add a mere three days to your life. Okay. All right, there are lots of other uh, things. Uh, I just want to tell you a little story. Um, uh, I look after uh, the Australian cricket team, and they're, so they're very elite. Cricket's a funny old sport that we inherited from the Poms, but uh, um, we, uh, and uh, it's incredibly boring, and, and you guys wouldn't be interested in it. It's even more boring than baseball, which is hard to, uh, hard to believe. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, we play for five days and sometimes don't even get a result, so yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's sort of an English thing, you know, it's anyway. Okay. Um, anyway, one of our very best cricketers, I was on tour with him in, uh, in India uh, in 2013. 
And uh, he, uh, he'd had a history of knee pain. And in fact, he'd had to take a year off his cricket because of his knee pain. And um, he uh, was struggling. He was playing again, but uh, wasn't able to train fully. He was unfit. The coaches were on his back because he wasn't fit enough. And um, uh, so on. So the story about his knee pain is that he'd had this knee pain. No one could work out what, uh, what was wrong with him. He'd had all sorts of tests and arthroscopy and so on. Finally, he saw a rheumatologist who said, you've got seronegative arthritis. Uh, which, for those of you who don't, it's similar to rheumatoid, but it's not, uh, not exactly the same, but similar sort of concept. So they started him on some pretty heavy-duty drugs, as you do. He started on penicillin and methotrexate, pretty strong, uh, marginal improvement. Uh, then they moved him on to uh, Enbrel, which is an anti-tumor necrosis factor drug. I think you have that uh, here, very expensive drug, 15,000 Australian. It's probably about 2 million American. Um, and... Uh, and uh, he was coping okay on, uh, on Enbrel. He was having fortnightly injections of Enbrel, and he said to me, on day 10 or 11 of that fortnight, my knee starts to ache, and I know it's time to have my, have my Enbrel. Well, as I said, he, I was with him on, on tour in India, and, uh, and he'd been on the previous tour, and in between the two tours is when I'd lost my weight. And he said, oh, Doc, you know, well done, you know, that's, that's, you know, good job, you've lost all that weight, uh, you know, how'd you do it? And he wanted to, he was very curious, because he was a little bit overweight himself. And he came up to you a little while later and said, look, I'd like to try the diet. So he went seriously low carb, um, did it very conscientiously. And uh, three weeks later, came up to me and said, Doc, uh, I forgot to take my Enbrel last week. Uh, I didn't have any knee pain. Do you think I should take it? I said, oh, just, just wait and see how you go. Well, that was February 2013, and he's had one dose of Enbrel since. Uh, he had one episode of pain after he'd been on a flight for about 14 hours, and he's not taken a single drug since then. And uh, he's now, his cricket has progressed to the point where he's now in the top 10 uh, batsmen in the world. And uh, so, you know, that it shows, I mean, it shows the, the, uh, the effect. I mean, you, again, I tell that to, to, uh, to uh, rheumatologists and, and they just don't believe me. And uh, they refuse to believe you because it's not in their paradigm, you know. We, want, we need drugs, you know. The interesting thing is, I mean, you know, many of you have been to, to medical school, okay. Now... Hands up those who had a subject in their medical degree called surgery. Okay, hands up those who had a, a subject in their medical degree called pharmacology or, you know. Okay, hands up those who had a subject in their medical degree called nutrition. Oh, gee. I can't even remember a single lecture on nutrition. So it's no wonder that doctors don't know anything about this. You know, we all like to be in our comfort zone, don't we? And nutrition is way out of most doctors' comfort zone. So how do we cope with something's out of our comfort zone? We reject it. Okay, enough uh, boring philosophy. All right, so, you know, positive effect on all these things, weight, diabetes, liver disease, cardiovascular risk factors, inflammation, and, you know, there's a huge, I mean, inflammation is everywhere. Um, I won't even talk about other, you know, there are other possible things. I, I'm, you know, pretty convinced that there's, there's links with, uh, with cancer, with Alzheimer's, dementia, autism, a whole irritable bowel, a whole range of diseases. But I don't say that in front of doctors because, you know, we don't have evidence uh, or we, we don't have complete evidence yet. But uh, I think that will all come out over the next, uh, the next few years. So, you know, I think it's pretty convincing, isn't it? Okay, so let's quickly talk about performance. And Pete did a fantastic job uh, this morning about talking about that. So I'm not going to uh, repeat what uh, what he said. He showed uh, very clearly that this is one of his runners, Tim Olson, who uh, who uh, held that uh, 100 mile record that he was talking about, and uh, and the CrossFit guys. You know, it's very clear that. Uh, 
a low-carb diet is beneficial for endurance, ultra-endurance uh, exercise. Now, not all of us run 100 miles uh, every day, um, but uh, you know, those who do, it's clearly, uh, clearly the case. Now, this is not exactly something new. Well, it is new to most of us, but uh, to one person in this room, it's not new. And uh, what year was this, Steve? 1983? Half of you weren't even born. None of the women in the room were even born then, were they? I mean, uh, you know, it, uh, Steve Finney wrote this in 1983, 33 years ago. And, uh, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not going to steal Steve's funder. He's talking uh, later in, in the conference. But uh, we're very, you know, privileged to have you here, uh, Steve, because, uh, you know, you're 30 years ahead of your time and uh, you've suffered as a result. That paper, was you'd probably argue, was the biggest mistake you ever made because ever since then, Steve was uh, ostracised by the scientific community. He didn't get any grants, he didn't get any promotions and it's really only been in the last couple of years that uh, Steve has been welcomed back, at least by our group, if not by, by medicine in general. So uh, um, we all owe you an incredible uh, debt. I know I'm going to embarrass him now, but we all owe uh, Steve an incredible... Uh, And Steve, in 10 years' time, when they decide they need to award a Nobel Prize for uh, the biggest change in, uh, in human nutrition in, uh, in this century, I hope you'll be one of the people who, uh, who get it, mate. That's uh, for sure. Okay. Um, many of you will have read uh, Volokh and Finney's, uh, that's uh, the Bible, if you like, on, on the effect of low-carb on performance. I would uh, thoroughly recommend that to you. And uh, a couple of papers that... Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good trio, isn't it? Noakes, Volick, and Finney. You know, anything they wrote, you know, you've got to read that. And uh, that's, uh, that's also a very good review in the European Journal of Sports Science. For those of you interested in the whole uh, fuel for endurance exercise, I thoroughly recommend uh, that paper. And, and congratulations to, to Steve and his co-authors on that. But what about other sports? Now, we talked a little bit this morning about the, the high-intensity sports, okay? The, you know, the basketball, the, uh, the soccer, uh, the rugby, the ones that require intermittent bursts of high activity. I mean, are they going to be helped by, uh, by a low-carb diet? Well, there's certainly lots of examples of, you know, in basketball, uh, you know, the biggest names. Uh, Dr. Shanahan was uh, speaking uh, the, the here at the conference, uh, was very involved with the, with the Lakers and reducing their, uh, their carb intake. Um, I had to uh, bring the Australian current uh, NBA uh, champion into that anyway. Um, but, um, uh, and you know, your own uh, football of, of course. And even, uh, even the big guys uh, are realizing there's some, uh, some benefits uh, to this. And uh, we're in a skiing environment and, and certainly the US is two uh, legendary skiers uh, of both, uh, both low carb. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, this is a great book, Novak Djokovic, any of you, uh, the number one tennis player in the world, arguably of, of all time. Um, he, uh, his whole life and his tennis changed when he changed his diet. And uh, it's a fascinating book to, uh, to read. And even golfers, you think, well, you know, golfers, they're all a bit, you know. But, uh, you know, <laughs> even, uh, even golfers have benefited from the weight loss associated with, uh, with a low-carb uh, low diet. Now, there's a huge problems with all the research, and I could go through all the research in, in, sport, in performance and low-carb, but there's lots of issues, uh, and it's very hard to wade through it, and most of it is very poor quality uh, research. So uh, that still needs to be done. Uh, but, you know, people are, are talking with their feet, if you like, and they're all adopting this, uh, this, uh, this diet. So it certainly enables athletes to lose weight. 
um, without losing strength, and that's very important for many athletes to imp improve their power to weight ratio. It's a huge thing in, uh, in athletes. So if they can do that, that's a great advantage. We talked a little bit this morning about recovery, you know, the reduction in inflammation as a result of exercise when you're on a low-carb diet makes a huge difference to recovery. And as Pete mentioned, recovery is probably the single, single biggest thing we talk about in sport and sports medicine at the moment, because the importance of recovering and being able to train again straight after you, uh, you exercise is so important. Now, uh, Louise Burke's name was mentioned this morning, a very prominent Australian uh, dietitian who's always been incredibly anti this whole uh, low-carb thing. In fact, she got up at a lecture last year and said that Tim Noakes and Peter Bruckner should be in jail, which I thought was very friendly. Um, <laughs> I, I felt like asking her, would you come and visit me, but um, bring me some, uh, some, you know, an avocado or something. But... Uh, um, <laughs> But uh, it's interestingly, she's sort of slowly, uh, you know, she's obviously sort of realised that, you know, what she was talking is rubbish, and she's sort of slowly coming around. So her latest thing is, uh, oh, why, why don't we uh, train low, compete high? And there is quite a lot of uh, sense in that, and then Pete uh, alluded to it uh, this morning, about uh, training in a low-carb state where you, uh, you train your, your fat, system, fat oxidation system and maximise it, get that working and relying on that, and then for competition days, um, maybe adding some carbohydrates uh, for the actual event, either the night before or during the race or whatever. And a lot of people find that uh, advantageous. There are certainly uh, people on, uh, on low-carb diets who say, yeah, but look, when I need to sprint, uh, you know, cycle up that hill or sprint finish or something, I don't quite have the, the burst that I think I should, and maybe that those people need to, uh, to have some carbs uh, on board. So if I want to summarise, uh, it's clearly good for health. We know that. Um, it's good for ultra-endurance athletes. It's a little bit unclear as to whether it's, uh, it's, it's good for more intense exercise. I think it's a very individual thing that uh, it probably varies from, from individual to individual. So is it for everyone? Someone asked this morning, you know, is a ketogenic diet for everyone? Well, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think it's necessary for everyone. Probably everyone is going to be healthier on it, but I don't think it's necessary for everyone. Probably every person has an optimal level of carbohydrate intake, and that depends really on their degree of insulin resistance. So if you're severely, significantly insulin resistant, if you're Tim Noakes and, uh, and your blood sugars are going up and you have all the indicators of, of insulin resistance, then yes, you know, a low-carb, ketogenic diet is certainly the diet for you. Um, I'd very strongly recommend that. If you're, and, and you know, many Many older people. So in young people, the majority are reasonably insulin sensitive. There are a group that are insulin resistant. In people of, of my age and, and middle age, you know, most of us are gradually becoming more and more uh, insulin resistant. Um, but there are some who are still very insulin sensitive, who can eat whatever they like and remain skinny and healthy and so on. So, you know, it's probably not as important for the insulin sensitive people to be on a low carb diet. But you know, because they seem to metabolize carbs very well. But the interesting thing is, and, and athletes are a classic example, what about years and years of high carbohydrate intake? You know, carb loading and, and Gatorades and Powerades and carbs and carbs and carbs and carbs for in a sporting career of 10, 20, 30 years. What effect is that going to have long term? You know, is the pancreas going to eventually say, oh, God, give us a break. You know, I'm exhausted. Sorry, I can't give you any more insulin, you know. So that may well be a factor. I think Anecdotally, I think a lot of retired athletes develop type 2 diabetes. I don't know whether that's your experience as Peter and, and Steve and so on, but you know, we, we need to do some studies on that. But I suspect that may well be, uh, may well be the reason.
I'm getting the wind up here. I'm going to talk about politics. Just finish with, uh, with politics, the politics of speaking over your time. Okay. Um, okay, so it's, you know, it's very obvious to us, isn't it, that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> low carb is, is the way to go. And yet that's what, you know, the medical profession is saying. So, you know, if the evidence, you know, to all of us is so obvious, I mean, that's what, you know, makes me... You know, I lie awake at night worrying about this. You know, it's so bloody obvious that, uh, you know, carbs are bad for us and we need to reduce them. How come everyone else can't see that? Well, you know, there are a number of reasons and there are a lot of, there are a number of impediments, okay? Unfortunately, the first impediment is the medical profession. I alluded to that earlier about their, their lack of nutrition knowledge, lack of understanding, their general conservatism. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful expression that says 50% uh, of everything we get taught in medical school is wrong. You just have to work out which 50%. Well, they're still struggling to work out that, uh, that one of it is, uh, is nutrition and so on. So we're very conservative. We're very reluctant to, uh, to change. We're very much in this drug and surgery paradigm, this disease model. You know, the model of we wait till people get sick and then we try and fix them rather than stopping them getting sick in the first place. We've got to replace the disease model with the health model. Uh, dietitians, well, with due respect to the dietitians here, obviously, you know, uh, enlightened, the dietitians are very negative about low carb. And look, in a way, I can, I can understand it. If you've been preaching something for 30 years, and you know, some uh, clown of a doctor in South Africa gets up and says, you know, you're wrong, um, you know, your natural reaction is gonna be to resist that. And uh, it takes a bit of courage uh, to admit that we have been wrong, and uh, I'm certainly happy to, it horrifies me, the advice I've given to some patients uh, over the years, and uh, I apologise to all of them, but um, you know, you've got to admit sometimes that you're wrong, and you've got to change, be prepared to change, and the dietitians need to do that, and they need to do it fast, or they'll become totally irrelevant. The food industry obviously has a huge vested interest in, in maintaining the, the status quo, but as I said, you know, they, they adapted very well to low fat, you know, okay, they put sugar in, but they adapted. And I think they'll adapt very well to, to low carb. We've just got to convince them that's, uh, that's the way to go. The agriculture is particularly an issue in this country. I think that's uh, one of the reasons why the next one, the politicians, are so reluctant to, uh, to, take, uh, to take this on. But uh, Roman uh, stole my thunder a little bit. Uh, thanks, mate. Bloody pom. Um, I'll... Uh, <laughs> In the, in, but because I think what's uh, what's happened is that uh, you know the public is confused a bit um, because there's so many different terminologies in different diets. There's low carb, there's paleo, there's Mediterranean, there's Atkins, there's Ducan, there's low GI, etc., etc. There's another 50 different diets, and we're sending mixed messages out the whole time. And I agree with Ronan that the public is confused. I think, uh, you know, they want to know, is fat good or bad? You know, is dairy okay? What about meat? Can I eat fruit? What about fruit juice? What about whole grain? Which yogurt is best? I mean, these are the questions that I get asked and people keep telling me, oh, I'm confused. I don't know what I should be eating. I've, you know, for 30 years, I felt quite comfortable. I've been bloody unhealthy, but I've been quite comfortable. <laughs> now you're confusing me. Stop it. And, uh, you know, I think that's a major problem. And uh, so I have a, I have a suggestion. Okay? The one thing that we all agree on, even the dietitians agree on, is sugar. Okay? Everyone agrees that sugar is a major problem, sugar overload. Okay, so why maybe, why don't we just focus on sugar as the, the low-hanging fruit? Excuse the fructose pun, but, uh, um, you know, why don't we, why don't all these, what I'm trying to do is, uh, and this is where we get our sugar from, 
you know, you're, all, you're all familiar with, you know, the soft drinks and it's fruit yogurts and it's the breakfast cereals and it's biscuits and buns and pastries and so on and sugar, you know, you know, all that sort of stuff. And good old Coke. I don't like to pick on Coke, but, you know, it's bad. <laughs> um, so at the moment, the average Australian, let's talk about teaspoons because that's, you know, there's different currencies and so on. Let's just talk about teaspoons. The average Australian intake of added sugar, not, not natural sugars, but added sugars, 25 teaspoons a day. Okay? You think, wow, that's a lot. No, it's only a bottle of Coke. Um, big bottle. Um, the WHO, the upper limit recommended is 12, uh, which is 10% of, uh, of your overall calories. Their ideal limit is 6. Okay? So what I'm suggesting is something that's called sugar by half. Okay? So to reduce the daily intake of added sugar by 50%, say from 25 at the moment, to 12, that upper limit of the, I know my maths is not quite right, but uh, that upper limit of, uh, of the WHO recommendations. So not even getting down to their ideal. In five years, okay, that would have a massive, that would have a massive impact on the health of my country and your countries. And how could we do that? Well, education, particularly children, I mean, you know, our generation, we're probably a lost cause, but uh, our kids are not. And, uh, and they're the important ones in, in this deal. So school canteen, education of kids, school canteens, um, hospital food, vending machines, nutrition guidelines. You know, I mean, come on. You know, how much more evidence do they need to change the, the guidelines? Food labelling, you know, really, uh, really important. You know, we need to start uh, putting the amount of sugar. We need to put uh, a little teaspoon with the number of teaspoons of sugar, a number in it, on every item of processed food. Because people don't understand about calories and grams and things like that. Everyone knows how much a teaspoon of sugar is. Health warnings. People say, ah, oh, waste of time. No one takes any notice of them. People do take notice of them. And they're a, they're a message. They're a sign that the government and others agree that something should be done. And taxation is another one. Now, I do my own little thing. I order 10 copies of the Big Fat Surprise every couple of months. And I give them out to every doctor who says they'll read it. So anyone I'm talking to about diet, any medical person, I say, will you read a book? And they all say yes, because, you know, it's not cool to say they wouldn't read a book. They say, tell us your doctors, you know. And um, they all say yes. <laughs> Sucked you in. And, um, and I, I give them a, a copy of Big Fat Surprise. I keep, uh, keep some in my car. And uh, that's my contribution to, uh, to the medical fraternity. Every single doctor who's read it so far has come to me later on and said, that's an incredible book. That's changed the way I... Uh, I live and how I practice. So I'm not saying that that's the only book around. I think that's the best book, but you know there are other excellent books uh, around as well. But that's my little contribution to my fellow medical professionals. Taxation is another, uh, another issue. That's a, we could talk about that for ages. Uh, one country in the world, Mexico, has uh, put in a soda tax. It's had a significant result, uh, reduction in, uh, in uh, soda intake and so on. So Diet, as we all know, I don't want to pretend that diet uh, is the only part. This is just for my New Zealand friends because uh, this is Australia winning the World Cup cricket earlier in the year. So, <laughs> you know, you're pretty special. You know, I mean, the two people in the, and the whole slide just for you, you know, okay? Um, and uh, I, I've lost the rugby one for some reason, but uh, anyway. Um, and, uh, and these are my essentials. For, for healthy living, the six S's, okay? Yes, sugar, we've got to avoid sedentary behaviour, no smoking, no stress, good sleep, good sun. They're, uh, they're the keys to it all. 
I worry about uh, you know my profession and uh, where they're going. But uh, I'll close with a, with a lovely quote by uh, by an American, uh, by a chap by the name of Wendell Berry. People are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health, and are treated by the health industry, which pays no attention <laughs> to food. Thank you very much. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We bid a fond farewell to the Low Carb Veil Lectures with Dr. Jay Wartman. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light. <laughs>